1: plushcare.com slash weight a
2: word of warning this podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering please use your discretion Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline and today I am joined by Emily who is also known as the Self-Healing Consultant. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Hi, it's an honor to be
2: here. I'm so, so excited to have you here with me And, and we've been talking for a while. Um, and you're actually coming to us from overseas. So do you mind giving us a little bit of background on on who you are and, and where you are now? There's a bit of a, a journey in there because
3: you've lived all over the world. <laughs> yes. Okay, so who I am and where I am now. Um, I'm Emily, as you said. I'm currently living in the Middle East in Israel. Um, I was born here. Um, And then when I was three years old, we relocated to London uh, for business. And then my parents sold the business. And when I was about 15, we moved to Spain, to Mallorca. And then I left home and dropped out of high school. And we'll probably get into that a bit later. But then I um, decided to join the army (laughs) and move to Israel. Um, so I moved here when I was just before my 18th and I've been here ever since, but now we are packing up and moving back to Spain, back to Mallorca. So that's, uh, the next chapter uh, to come and who I am. I'm a mum. It was my lifelong dream to be a mother and it came true three years ago. I've got a three-year-old and I also have a nine-month-old, nearly nine months. Um, and I have an online business. Um, I'm a self-healing consultant, which means that I I consult for women that are on their self-healing journeys, that are embarking on their self-healing journeys. Um, consulting means mentoring slash coaching slash a bit of therapy although I'm not a psychologist so I don't like saying that it's therapy but it basically is (laughs) um I'm basically like a mentor and a coach for women on their self-healing journeys and what I like to do for fun I don't have much time for fun. I think that what I do is my fun. I mean, because it's it's my passion, it's my purpose. It doesn't feel like work. Um, every spare minute I have, I'm writing an article or working on a graphic for my groups or my, you know, something, <laughs> my website. I love being creative. So I love doing all the graphics for my, for my, I did my own website and I do all the graphics for my Facebook covers and stuff and my posts. And I love writing. So I write articles and, and all my Instagram is my own content. Um, I love reading and researching. I like knowing things, learning things. I like having the answers to things, which makes me a good consultant. (laughs) Um, but that's, that's really my fun right now. And, and obviously having fun with my, with my baby boys, we sing a lot, we dance a lot. We're very silly.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. That's so wholesome. Um, but I completely understand that as well. I mean, a lot of my spare time goes into this podcast um and connecting with survivors. And it doesn't feel like work because it is so passionate. And it can be hard at times. It's not always fun. Um, but you're right, it feeds a passion inside of you that it, it feeds that desire that you have. So I completely understand that. That makes so much sense. But we did connect here so that you could tell your story as well. So where were you in your life,
3: I guess, when, when your
2: story begins?
3: Probably as a baby. I mean, I don't know if you're um, familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate no. and his work. Okay. Awesome person to, to, to look up and, and read about and learn about Dr. Gabor Mate. Amazing guy. He basically says that a lot of our, our trauma and our stress starts in childhood um, he talks about how his starts when he's an infant, like a six month old, because um, it was in the Holocaust. And so technically my story will probably begin in, in infancy as a baby. Um, but more relevant story would be in yeah, in, in young childhood. My parents, as I said, when they, they started the business, I was three when we moved to England. And so I was raised by nannies and they went around a lot, my parents. And so I, at a very young age, learned indirectly to feel unworthy or unloved, even though they told me they loved me. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I, I had people looking after me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I didn't feel it because there's a lot um, that we, we need attachment at those young ages and we need to yeah. be shown Love, we need the act, the action, not just like words and stuff like that. So, the fact that they just were absent <laughs> physically um, made me feel unloved, unworthy, unwanted. Um, that's how my little child mind perceived it, interpreted it. And then, um, so from the age of five, I was hurting myself on purpose to try and get attention um, and affection, which is pretty steep for like a five year old. Like, I'd throw myself down the stairs, or I'd get a friend to trip me up like I'd run and get them to trip me up so I could hurt myself, stab myself with a pencil. I remember that. Um so yeah just all these random things. So I guess it started pretty early. But then um by the time I was 13 um I'd attached to my peers. Dr. Gawamato also talks about attachment. So I um because I didn't attach to my parents and my caregivers, I attached to my peers. And so I attached to the peers that were very exciting and rebellious and had all the exciting stories and all the adventures. Um, as a child, I'd been very outgoing and confident and adventurous and that, that kind of spark got dimmed as I felt, I guess, rejected by my parents. Like my mom, wouldn't, she never came to school trips because she was busy running the business. So like I'd sit there on the bus with all my friends and their mums, and I wouldn't have my mum. So that felt that would like, you know, when you're small, that's really tra- traumatic, you know. Is, yeah. Um, anyway, and then at um, so 13, I attached to my peers, and my uh, peers were the naughty ones. And, and my parents became the enemy, really. Um, and then so I started rebelling, drinking, drugs, boys. Um, and at age 14, my 60-something-year-old piano teacher kissed me and I told my parents, and they did nothing about it. My parents like to avoid conflict and discomfort at all costs. And they also believe that attractive females will get unwanted attention. that's just the way the world is. And so they didn't, I think that's also, that's quite, you know, common in their generation as well. But me as a 14 year old, very confused. (laughs) And what I learned was not to tell when something happens and that men can do what they like with me. And so that's what I learned at 14. And I think that um, subconsciously what we do when we don't understand things and things are a bit too difficult for us to kind of make sense of and grasp, we kind of, we twist things so that we can cope with it. And what I chose to do was to own it. I was like, okay, if, if, and by the way, this is all like, I only figured this out recently, right? <laughs> like yeah. As I'm, as I'm telling you the story, I'm telling you what I, what I analyzed about it. Right. So yeah. tell but me you want like- to do it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. I think it's great
2: reflection, but you're like, you're not going through it like this at the time, at the time you're kind of figuring it all out.
3: Exactly. At the time I was just like, cl- like totally lost and confused and okay, men can do what they want and I'm not but on no point saying anything about it so that's what I knew at the time but how I subconsciously responded to that was I became overtly sexual because I wanted to own it um I guess get some kind of sense of control um so age 15 I lost my virginity to my tennis coach who a year later got jailed for grooming his underage students um and it took me until age 26 to realize that he groomed me as well I believed that I wanted it but I didn't realized that he'd groomed me. So that was, I don't think, so that was, um, I lost my, my virginity was statutory rape. <laughs> and then a few, and then, okay, because I guess subconsciously that did do something, I just went even more into drugs, started doing ecstasy, started running away from home, drinking a lot more, smoking a lot more, kind of started losing myself and detaching from myself. And then, um, and then I ran away from home. My parents, police brought me home and my parents said, what do you want? because it was super strict by now. And I said, I want to do whatever I want, when I want, where I want. (laughs) And they complied. And a week later, we were on holiday in Spain. This is just before we moved. And they let me go out clubbing. And my friend bailed on me last minute, so I went out alone. And I was raped twice that night. Once by the bouncer and once by the manager of the club. Yeah, that night was, that was... That was a bad night. <laughs> that was a really bad night. Um, I'm sorry. It's just like, you know,
2: you feel in control at these stages of your life. And I think yeah. we all look back on these times, but you're at 14 or 15, you're the oldest you've ever been. So you think that you know everything about the world. And looking back on it now, you're like, oh, my gosh, I was so young and so naive and I was so innocent. But also
3: nobody had the right to do that to you. It's taken me until, like, recent years to say I was, st- I was a child and, like, to accept the fact that I was still a child. I think that age 14, 15 is still a child. I know that there are cultures and societies that, like, don't see it that way, but I do think that you're still a child. And, um, and it was really – it's been hard for me to kind of accept that because it is so painful what happened that night. But at the time, I knew it was coming – I was acting overtly sexual. I was out clubbing. I was drinking myself to death. I was, and I knew it was coming, but I didn't, I couldn't ha- I didn't have the tools to handle it, obviously. Um, especially not the manager, because uh, oh, this one's hard for me to say, I think out loud, but he, um, that one was anal. Yeah. And that took me by surprise big time I did not expect like I I knew the first one was coming and the second one I knew was coming but I did not expect that from behind and I hardcore disassociated like hardcore and then yeah but I still didn't realize it was rape I still didn't think I'd been raped I thought I just had sex because I'm a I'm a grown-up I'm you know I'm doing what I want to do kind of thing um And so it took me about two weeks and one of my best friends to tell me that it was rape. And then told my parents, took me to the police and the police did nothing because the police there are corrupt. And I know they're corrupt because a year or two later, I was doing drugs and sleeping with some of them um, in Spain because we moved to Spain to the same area. So the police are really corrupt there. So like they knew the manager and they knew he'd had like, I wasn't the only one that had like reported him, but nothing happened to him. He ended up being a bouncer at another club. So. That was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> they just um, don't
2: take it. They're just like, okay, like maybe these people are paying them off or maybe they're just seen as respected, in inverted commas, people in society so they don't get held accountable. Or
3: Yeah, but it's, I think from a very young age, I was let down big time by authority figures. You know, if yeah. it was my parents, if it was the police, like I was just hugely like disappointed and let down. Um and then every time I try to talk to my parents about it, like what's going on, what's going on with the case, there's only update, what's happening, la, la, la. Then they just avoided it. They don't want to talk about it. And they also, you know, so like don't tell anyone about it. So I also learned that I'm not safe in my house and my parents don't look after me and don't want to look after me. And that I felt, I also learned to feel ashamed. Yeah. Um, I think that when we're told not to talk about things, then you, then, then like, the logical connection is okay. So I need to be ashamed of it. Like that's the connection I made in my head at the time. And I think that that's a really big thing that needs to change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) That's, That's why I'm, I'm really open about my story. Like, I think it made me, I think, I think I did a post recently, like we were silenced in the past so that we would speak up louder, you know, like it's made me want to talk about my story even more because I was told not to. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I relate to that so much because even before starting this podcast it was not long not too long before that even you know 10 years after my my sexual assault where my parents had or my mom had specifically said don't don't tell that person don't tell people and it was like well this is a bit ridiculous now. And I remember I think and that specifically is why the me too movement has been so wonderful for so many people and liberating because it's just started to say It's okay for you to speak about this, which we've all, like so many of us have actually been told not to talk about it or to not bring it up and never had
3: anyone to speak to about it. So I completely, Mm -hmm. completely feel you with that. I think that when we don't talk about stuff as well, it gives it more power. I think we we can we take the like the negative kind of like power away once we air it out we talk about it we get it out then we can start processing and we can start you know freeing and liberating ourselves from like the power that it's had over us so yeah so I think that's important so continuing with the story uh, this is just at fifteen right so then we moved to Spain and then I started harder drugs. By 17, I was hooked on alcohol and cocaine. And then, and I was promiscuous and trying to uh, prove to myself that everything was fine. Look at me. I can, that's the route I took to cope, ran away from home. And then the last time I tried to run away, my dad caught me. So I said, I'm out and I left home. And then I dropped out of school as well because school was really boring for me. I was, I was a gifted child, I guess. Um, so I excelled in academics and athletics and music and art and anything really, I decided to kind of try and in Spain in Mallorca, it's a little Island. And so the school there wasn't the standard I was used to in England. I went to the first school in England and, and then in um, New York it was just it was a bit of a joke. I was helping the the teachers like teach the kids and stuff. And so I was like, I better use my time getting a job. Um, so I got a job and I got an apartment. Um, and about a month in I was in a Coke and booze induced depression. (laughs) And I was just like, I need to go back home and I can't start life like this at 17 without any, anything like this is ridiculous. Yeah. And so my parents gave me a, a condition that I would break up with my boyfriend at the time, who was a bad egg. And, um, and so I did. And then a few days later, my best friend at school told me that she slept with him. So that threw me off the rails. And I went on a bender, ended up in bed with a stranger, and then tried t- to kill myself. And so got sent to hospital and put on antidepressants for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then um, and then I spoke to my parents and we decided that I should join the army because I needed structure, I needed discipline, but I needed to be far away from home because they didn't know what to do with me and I didn't want to be there. So I moved to Israel by myself at 17 and I remember my mum telling me to call them every Friday to make sure I'm okay. And I just remember feeling unwanted, you know, like they just want to hear from me once a week. Okay. <laughs> Um, like the obligatory but, kind of check-in, you know,
2: <laughs> yeah. As long as we get the, um, you're alive, that's yeah. That must've felt really shit. And I, I think like, it just sounds like you're in a bit of, um, this spiral, um, and you, you can see how like abuse and assaults and stuff have such a ripple effect on our lives and they, it's not just an assault. And I have to say this to so many people to make them understand you can't just, somebody doesn't just get over that. And it's not just that for you as well. There's so much going on in your world that's chaos, and it's just created this environment for you that's unhappy and unsafe. And I'm glad that you were able to get to a point where you've like, okay, no, this is enough. I've, I'm not safe, and I'm not happy here. I needed to make a change.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like if you if you ask like when you say you know people don't get over assaults and stuff, I think it was that. The assaults actually came after the the initial trauma for me, I think, was not feeling loved and not knowing how to protect myself or that I should protect myself. I never learned that I was worth protecting. And so I essentially totally like unconsciously put myself in situations where I was in danger and totally compromising myself because I thought that that's the not that's the way it was supposed to be. Like I literally learned that that was what is going to, that's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) Like, that's just, it's just going to happen. Um, and so, yeah. And so I, I found myself in this cycle and I hated myself because I, I, I kind of felt like I was doing it to myself, but I didn't understand why I would do that to myself. And I think this like not understanding, not understanding why and that it just, it, it, it destroyed me. I was just like, I don't understand why I keep drinking and doing drugs. If I'm finding myself in the alley, you know, like why, why do I keep doing this? Um, and, and I think the root the route that I got to was just not knowing how to love myself and how to protect myself and how to care for myself and respect myself and all of that. Like that was the the underlying kind of like common denominator and everything. Um, when you don't think you you're worthy of anything better, you just keep doing the crap that, you know, you're used to doing, you know, where we're 18. I'm in the army 19. I got raped again by another friend. Uh, this time it was someone I knew as well. um, my boyfriend's friend uh didn't tell anyone again for about two years then when I was 21 things were looking up I actually got accepted to university here without finishing high school because I had really good letters of recommendation I cried for like an hour and a half I was like oh my god I'm so relieved I don't have to go back to school um <clears throat> so I got into university and things were going well and I was I got engaged as well because I wanted to be a mom And then last minute I called off the wedding three months before the wedding because I realized that it wasn't right. And I actually developed irritable bowel syndrome in the 10 months leading up to canceling the wedding, which was ridiculous because I was like something's really wrong with my stomach. No one knew what it was. No one could figure it out. In the end through process of elimination, they said, okay, it must be IBS. And I was, suffering so badly I couldn't work I couldn't go to school I couldn't do anything I was like cramping and like oh my god it was so horrible um and then the minute I broke off the wedding it disappeared and I was like that's ridiculous that's ridiculous 10 months of like pain and diarrhea and like what the hell like not being able to function and it just went poof disappeared anyway so I got high oh. BS around the age of 20 and then that disappeared with the, with the wedding, calling up, calling off the wedding. But around the same time, I reached out to a model agency um, <clears throat> offering to do their PR. Cause I was studying communications and I was a PR in the army and I loved it. And I was like, okay. And secretly I was like, maybe if they, you know, see me, they'll, they'll book me for some modeling jobs. I wanted to be a model, you know? Um, and they did. I did a few modeling gigs and the owner um, turned out to be grooming me again. Uh, we got friendly for a few months and then he ended up um, drugging me at his house and he kept me there for about three months and oh gosh and this was the biggie <laughs> um, oh, I can even I feel it in my body right now the, yeah. it was it the oh, that man broke me dude it was hard um I was begging for the drugs every week just to escape the reality um Mm -hmm. I created a reality a different reality in my head that we were in love and that he was my boyfriend and I believed it wholeheartedly like I believed that we were in a relationship because that was the only way I could really cope with it um even this hasn't been diagnosed, but I'm assuming it's like Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, you know?
2: Yeah, it's it's a probably they call it trauma bonding sometimes, but I think it's more it's the way that your body survives. You know how you've got your fight and your flight and your fawn and your comply. You can mm-hmm. get to a stage of compl- an utter compliance because you you depend on that. Your life depends on you being in this situation and and believing it. If you don't, then it's too dire for you not to. But in that situation were you unable to leave? Like were you kept?
3: Okay. So here's the thing. The first, the first few days I'd actually more or less overdosed. So when I came around, I had no idea where I was. I had no idea who he was and I was freaking the fuck out. And then, um, it took him a couple of hours to like calm me down, but I was not, fully functional. Like I wasn't, I didn't know where I was. I was so like, my brain was mush from all the drugs. It was like, when we'd done, we'd done so much drugs. Um, he tricked me into it and yeah. Okay. So basically when I, when I got to his as friends before, like everything, so we were at a party and I was drinking and I said to him, promise me that you'll look after me. I don't want to be doing any drugs. Like I've been clean for two years and like, I'm doing really well. So just like look after me kind of thing. I really trusted him. He was like my friend. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah sure. And then he took me down to his apartment with two other guys who turned out to be one was a really bad ex con and his lawyer. Um, anyway, and they took me down and the deal that I found out later was that they said that they wanted to take me. And he said, well, if you if she goes with you, then you need to bring me, a different girl like in like to replace me kind of thing this I found out later so I'm down in this guy's house with three with two other guys and he knew that I just called off my wedding a few months ago and that I was like having fun living life la 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 and he was like okay you know and he got at this plate uh, with powder on it and he said oh let's just do a little bit come on and like pressing that button of like you know live life and la 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 la, la and and i was really drunk as well and i was just like no 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 and eventually kind of i gave in i was like they said it was this it was like um here in israel at the time this is like over a decade ago there was a very um, mild mild kind of powder pretend drug and i'd done it before and it was like sand it was just like nothing it was like class D kind of fake thing mm. that yeah. people were trying to like make and I, So they were claiming like, that's what it was. And I was just like, no, 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 And then they're like, come on, come on. And I was like, okay, fine, you know? And and I did a bit and it turned out to be crack. (laughs) Apparently, like that's what I was told by an investigator afterwards, like when I went to the police. Basically, I got so fucking high that I was just like, more, 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 more. And it turned into like a binge of like a good, I reckon it was about two days where we were just doing drugs, the four of us with no food, no drink, no sleep, just like, just doing drugs. And I reckon and I OD'd because there was a point at the end before I passed out where I was like on the floor, like seizing. Yeah. And I remember that. And then I passed out and then I woke up in his house and I was just, and I didn't know who he was. So then um, after a couple of hours of me crying, oh my God, I did drugs. I let myself down. I remember I did drugs. Like that's what I remembered. And he managed to somehow persuade he's like just do another line you'll feel better and I mean at this point I was so depressed and on the come down and like upset and lost. I I wanted to jump out the window I was like so I was like all right what else have I got to lose I did another line and I felt better and I was like oh you can trust him you do feel better so we just carried on doing more and I started hallucinating I was just gone and so those first few days there and then he took me to bed um, the first few days there I couldn't do anything I couldn't cook I couldn't like drive I couldn't I didn't know where it was I didn't know I my brain was just vegetative I was just like basically he would feed me and take me to bed feed me and take me to bed and I would be hallucinating like I wanted to go to the toilet I remember walking into the closet like I thought we were in a hotel and I thought we were in I thought he was an accountant like I remember all these like. I just I was just not there yeah um and so that's how it kind of started so then I'd been there for a few days and anything he kind of told me I was believing he told me that the other guys had tried to like molest me and he'd saved me and this and that and like you know he's feeding me all these lies and all these things to make me trust him and believe him and and like appreciate him and realize that he's really helping me and he's actually being really good to me and la 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 and Every time I felt better, I was like, oh, I need to pick me up. I need something to feel better. And so it just like kept on feet and it got stuck in a cycle. So I didn't really try and leave for, I think, the whole first week. And then I was just like, I want to go. I want to leave. And, and every time I, I think I tried to leave in my moments of lucidity, um, he said that he, would try and, that he would kill me. So I was like, all right, then. <laughs> I guess that's not happening then. So I'm stuck here. Okay. I remember one time I locked myself in the bathroom and called my friend and I said, Hey, can you come pick me up? And she was like, no, I've got to go to work. And I was like, okay, bye. And that was like, that was like one of my attempts to leave just because like, I was just so not with it. I was just like, I need to get out of here, but I don't know how. And I like, and I had a car and I had an apartment and he ended up taking money from me for rent. Like, like the level that this guy got into my, like, system was just I was I was literally just a shell of a person. Like like I remember he was I remember he was like, oh I told you I'd break you. And I remember I was bleeding because like he and I remember he was just like oh yeah I told like he was so happy that he managed like he was so proud of himself that he managed to break me like physically but he broke me like psychologically. Yeah. Um eventually after three months I managed to leave.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: And again, like I did go in and out eventually like, in between here and there. But by then, by the time he let me out, I was like, I'm his girlfriend and it's fine. Like I was in this like whole other world, like this whole other reality. It was just like, but it is like it's
2: this tr- creating a trust, but also creating a dependency, and you know there's some of those aspects of coercive control that um, domestic abuse survivors have, and and you know there is um, Bederman who has that chart of coercion, and they've they've overlaid that with torture that prisoners of war experience. You know and when these defectors came back from, I think it was um, the Korean War, um, these Americans defected to communist China and they were like, how did they get this? And the Americans were saying, you know, this is mind control. How are they mind controlling? But it was through things like this and, you know, I'm sure that adding drugs into the mix would completely make you more vulnerable in a sense of like becoming dependent on somebody, you know, being isolated from the people that you know, love and trust, being frightened for your life, but also being cared for at the same time. Like, I'm going to kill you, here's some food. What the fuck? Like, you're creating this huge dependency on this person. It's completely understandable that you've gotten into that place. thats It's just terrifying. I'm so sorry that not only you've had to go through that for so long, but you've also had to deal with the fact that you feel what sounds like, you know, you felt like you were in a relationship as well so afterwards it must have been so hard for you to kind of understand that it wasn't your fault
3: i think i i think it's taken me about 10 years more 10 11 years to realize that it wasn't my fault yeah um i think when i when i got out of there i i cra- I, I crashed like everything hit me i was i was a mess i remember going to my gp and sitting there and I was, I was underweight, and coming down off the crack (laughs) and having like terrors. So not sleeping and ticks, and like PTSD, hardcore, like PTSD. And I was sat there shaking and I said to her, help me. (laughs) Like I, I, I need help. Like, I don't know what to do. And I told her the story and she was just like, Right. Okay. We're putting you into a treatment, like sense, and they they put she put me into like um this uh like like an outpatient treatment thing. It was like cut every four or five mornings a week where it'd be group therapy, art therapy, this therapy, whatever, and a psychiatrist and blah blah blah. And it was like a three month program, and I think I was there for about eight months. And then they're like, "We're going to have to let you go." <laughs> um, and I remember when I got there at the beginning, like the other people in the group were like what are you doing here? Like a 21 year old. And I looked like a model at the time, you know, and they're like, what are you doing here? And I, then I would tell my story and they'd be like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but it, it would, it kind of helped and and, but not enough. Um, and I was on all these different meds, you know, sleeping medication didn't help at all. At The night terrors were really bad. I, I would, I would regularly just wake up in just a pool of sweat. Like I'd have to change my shit every night. Um, obviously, by the way, like he slashed the tires of my car. He was texting me all night, all morning, like, like he would not leave me alone. Um, and uh, I had to get a restraining order. Um, so I did eventually go to the police. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't up to it. Like mentally, psychologically, I was, they called me about, a week or two later saying hi we need you to come in and and confront him for the case like it's good for your case if you come and confront him we need to see you guys like confront like together and I was like do this and they're like yeah yeah it's good for your case come in so I got cab and I went there to the police station and they I remember when I told my, when I eventually, when I originally made my report and they said that I would have to like potentially confront him, I made the police officer promise me that he'd be there. And he wasn't when they called me in and I had to sit in front of the elevator and I thought, and I was sitting by myself on the bench. And I remember like, what if the elevator was open right now and he comes out and I'm just sitting here by myself. So I ran down the stairs and I saw him come in and I ran into this like office and I just burst in crying like all these policemen are there. (laughs) So they took me up um, and they put me in the room with him and a woman sitting there taking notes of what we're saying. And I felt like laughing and it was like mania, like manic, kind of like, and I just, I wasn't equipped to handle the situation. I'm stuck in front of like my abuser (laughs) And the police again let me down. There was no, there was no, um, assistance, no support, no supervision, no one there with me, no one explained, like nothing. Um, so that was a mess and they wanted to open a case on me because obviously he came in really prepared, you know, um, Anyway, that was a mess.
2: It's just the worst possible way that you could address that situation. Like you're putting you in more danger by making you confront somebody and potentially make them more angry. He's threatened you by continuing to talk to you after you've ended the relationship. He's shown violence by thrash- slashing your tires. Like these are all huge indications of danger coming. Like it's it's ridiculous. And of course, you've you've just you've gone through what you've gone through. And you're in this hugely stressful environment. You're not going to act in a way that a person that is in their right state of mind, not under stress, would act. You're not going into a meeting like an assistant would and taking minutes down. It's not like that. You're in one of the highest stress situations your body would have ever experienced because you're confronting your abuser. Like I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been.
3: The police... I feel really, really need to be trauma informed. <laughs> I mean, I think it really needs to be a part of their training, like police. Uh, by the way, teachers also, and you know, lawyers. Everyone, like, I really think that uh, I'll get to that. But that's one of my 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 goals. My mission is to to educate about trauma and about the way our minds work, so that these kind of things won't happen again because I think yes. it's ridiculous that police don't understand trauma and how that can affect people and influence people, and that a victim of abuse would be called in weeks within leaving her captor and be asked to confront the abuser, just like oh yeah, you know. Let's see how you stand up to him. <laughs> it's like duty serious. <laughs> yeah, but it's also like not
2: being trauma-informed when most of the people that you engage with as a part of being a police officer would have experienced some kind of trauma. Like it's just the most backwards thing.
3: It's so backwards. It's so backwards and it's and it's wrong. Like it's really wrong. I mean even, even the way the system works with, you know, with, with drugs and addicts and I think Belgium is the – the only country at the moment that doesn't punish addicts, they help <laughs> them recover. Like the police actually take them and then put them into like a recovery or rehab kind of facility as opposed to jail. But I think, you know, like in the American system that the prison, the privatized prisons, is, it's just ridiculous. And it is just slave labor. They just it's put slave anyone labor. in. It is. Yeah. And they don't understand that it's it. people that are... Tra- criminals are traumatized people. That's it. They don't need more punishment. They need rehab. They need rehabilitation. They need to be taught how to recover, how to return to themselves to a sense of normalcy. Maybe they've never had normalcy. Probably not, some of them, you know? But like, I mean, there's this there's this guy that really, really impacted me that I I've, I've met. I spoke with him. We did a podcast um, recently, Sammy Rangel. And he did a TED Talk. And he was, he was an ex, he's an ex-con. But he managed to turn his life around. But he tells his story of, horrific trauma and he managed to rehabilitate and turn himself around and now he is just he's full of like passion purpose and and trying to make the world a better place you know but he explains it you know like hurt people hurt people you know and I mean obviously not everyone hurts people not every hurt person will hurt other people but um but you know what I'm assuming that yeah because I've been traumatized I'm assuming I've hurt people along the way you know, unconsciously, subconsciously, not, not meaning to, obviously I'm giving extreme situations with convicts and drug users and addicts and stuff, but like, yeah, addiction is, is a way to cope with with trauma, with unmet needs, you know? Yeah. And once you're an Um, addict as well,
2: it's, you need support to get out of that. You can't, being an addict is not, it's a disease. And I think, you know, in Melbourne, where I live in Australia, we do have safe injecting centers for heroin users. So it's not, they're not people aren't arrested and taken to police stations because they're injecting they're taken to these safe injecting centers where they can do it safely um and there's still a lot i think of people around that are like lock them up they shouldn't be doing it but it's like they're gonna access it anyway we need to stop people dying on the streets so that we can actually help them they don't have to be helped this time right? But they're at these services. They're at places where they're meeting different people. They're getting different opportunities. Like it doesn't have to all be one. And I think you're right. It's to stop criminalizing everything. And if you flip that as well into a fucking rich white situation, if they're using cocaine, they're not going to be in the same situation as somebody who's arrested that's using heroin, at least not in Australia in most circumstances. So, you know, I completely understand that. And it's, it is unfortunate, but I do like that you said as well. And I always make that preface as well. A lot of, for example, serial killers have had a history of child abuse or some kind of child molestation. That's one part of their life though. And that's not why they became a serial killer, like the biopsychosocial model. Yeah. If you're traumatized, it doesn't mean that that will be an outcome at all, but it is that, yeah, so that's what I'm seen as a common theme.
3: No, but that's what I'm saying. Her, not every person that's traumatized isn't going to be traumatizing other people, right? Like that, I, I did mention that because we are made up of other things. I think it's, I think it's about. Um, I don't remember the the exact percentages, but I reckon forty percent is the environment. The rest mm. is you know, the, um, genetic predisposition and and things like that. But yeah, that may be yeah. inaccurate. But there, there's a <laughs> There are percentages, like I don't remember the exact percentages, but there is a part that is is our environment and our experiences, right? And so when we do look at the people that are hurting people, that are raping, killing, violent, whatever, you will see that in, I believe, 90% of them, 99% of them, there's trauma. Like it's not just you know oh there's a common theme no there's trauma if they they have a predisposition to violence potentially in their psyche or whatever but if they didn't have that trauma then they probably wouldn't you know like if they had the tools if they had the emotional regulation if they had the safety the sense of you know attachment and safety and love and nurturing and whatever if they had everything that they needed if they had all their needs met then they wouldn't have become a criminal they wouldn't have become that you know. and that's essentially like, I do believe that the root cause to all of the world, big problems is trauma. <laughs> that's like my conclusion based on all of my research and experiences and everything, that trauma is the issue that we need to kind of focus on, um, in my opinion. But yeah, so basically, um, after after that incident, I I struggled with meds and treatments and therapies and and. Uh, drinking problem, Um, dabbled in drugs, but the drinking was my main kind of uh, refuge, I guess, to escape, to numb, to not have to deal with things, to kind of forget. Um, Obviously, got more and more blackouts, memory loss, uh, less uh, messy situations because I kind of found um, a solution, which was just being in a relationship. So I was in constantly in just in a relationship yeah sorry um because the if I was in a relationship if someone ever came like onto me whatever I'd say also I'm I'm," like that's that's how I knew I could protect myself because I I was I belong to someone else kind of thing so you can't touch me (laughs) yeah so that was like my my way to protect myself so I was always in a relationship um and and yeah and then I got married that was miserable, got divorced. Um, then I, uh, dated a younger guy and, and after a while I realized that he wasn't, he wasn't ready to settle down. He was, he was too young and and he was also emotionally, um, unstable at the time. And, um, when we broke up he did try to overdose and that was that that impacted me in a way that i didn't expect um it was like suddenly i was on the other side yeah you know what i'm saying like cuz i've been the one always that was the emotionally unstable one and suddenly i'm it's like he mirrored me for me um and i think i think the relationship with him had a huge impact on me and by the end of it i was I wanted to help other people. I wanted to serve as an example. I wanted to show him that we can get better um, and that we can change. And And I remember at the time I told my best friend, i decided I want to help people. And she said, how can you help people if you can't help yourself? And that hit me uh, pretty yeah. hard. And, and so I decided that I was going to help myself. And I took up yoga. Within a month, I got sober. Um, I'd had a few other kind of events that led up to the sobriety. I, I crashed, like collapsed on my floor after a solo binge drinking session. And I, there was whole, all these like little things that kind of led up to it. But I, I quit drinking. And then, um, and then it was just like a rebirth. And I decided I wanted to make up for all the lost time and and I wanted to learn how everything works and I found out what was going on in the world and I was very disappointed and upset and took it really hard and I read about how the UN works doesn't work and I cried for an hour and a half like UN troops raping villages I was like oh my god what the hell is going like the world is fucked (laughs) and so and at the time I'd been reading a lot of autobiographies a few years back I'd when I was married I was like oh I want to write my autobiography so I started reading autobiographies and I was also immersing myself in self-help because the marriage was like doing really badly um so i think that also kind of led up to the rebirth kind of thing and one of the autobiographies that i was reading at the time of of my rebirth i was uh, was elon musk and how he uh wants to colonize mars (laughs) and that everyone thought he was crazy and he didn't care and i was just like okay well if I'm really honest, I want to save the world and I don't care <laughs> what people think. And so I decided to save the world that that was going to be my, like my mission. So, so my mission is to try and help save the world. And I was inspired by Jacques Fresco. You can look him up. He has, uh he was, he's, he passed away a few years ago, but he dedicated his life to trying to save the world. And his ideas are developing a shared resource-based economy, um, making money obsolete because we don't need it anymore. We have enough resources to like everyone to live happily how we want, blah, blah, blah. And it just needs to be intelligently organized and managed. Anyway, guy's amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I was like, inspired and motivated and just kind of immersed myself in inspirational people, Malala and her education and yeah, son of absolutely. Hamas the son of Thomas great book as well that we can change and like how our environment kind of shapes who we are, but we can change that. Like every, I was just like, okay, cool. Um, how am I going to change the world? So I went back to university and I got my master's in organizational behavior and development to become a professional problem solver. Um, and then, and it was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had to my master's. It was incredible. Um, and yeah, and then, just before I graduated, I got pregnant. I fell in love with my man, um, who actually turned out to be someone that I knew for ages. But never mind, timing and life timing. Had my baby, and then COVID hit, and I decided that I will put my formal training to good use. And um, yeah, the 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 masters like took me down a lot of self-healing path. My motherhood, more of a self-healing path. Like I just, like, I started really researching hard for how I could help myself even further. You know, now I was sober. I was I was like, okay, let, let's go. Well, <laughs> self-awareness, journaling, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, like everything, 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 just hardcore trying to... I was just so happy and yeah. I'd never been happy. Um, I remember calling my mom going, Mommy, I'm happy. I don't know <laughs> like I'm happy. And I, my relationship with my parents uh, is amazing, like they're both my best friends. Um and then funnily enough, like I was no longer the one doing all the drama, like other dramas started happening <laughs> um around me, like different people. But um, and I started helping people and I keep having to pinch myself that this is now my reality.
2: That's absolutely incredible. It's so inspirational. I've got goosebumps, especially about like how passionately you're talking about these things that have come into your life and helped you shape who you are today. And I relate to that so much. And I think it's just such a wonderful thing to kind of, you know, you don't have to create anything and and no idea is a stupid idea. Like just think about something that you are fucking passionate about and you will be happy every day. If that's what you worked in, something you're passionate about, not working for status, not working for other things, but just working for what you want in your heart, then that's one of those great steps. I think that's absolutely incredible. The life that you've had to go through and everything that you've had to endure, I'm so sorry because you never deserved that. It's, It's just completely inspirational to see what you've endured and how you've tackled each thing. And you can see almost at each stage or you've got this fight in you and you're trying to fight for yourself as well. And you have at every stage. I think it's just incredible.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, now now it's just like, every time I'm faced with a challenge, it's an opportunity. I'm, I get excited when life throws shit at me. I'm just like, yes, what am I going to learn now? Yeah. <laughs> How can I then teach it to other people? Like, I swear that's, that's now my, my reality. It's ridiculous. Like, obviously I've got bad days, but when I have those bad days, they don't crush me. They, they, I get motivated. I'm like, okay, this is a really whole day. Oh my God. Like, ah, oh, this is so bad. But then I remind myself I have me. Yeah. Okay. Like I have me, and that's that's like been my thing. Um, the biggest kind of underlying healing kind of part of my journey is that I have me, and and I can depend on me now, and I can rely on me now. Like I've given myself the tools, and I'm using them, and I'm I'm growing, and I'm healing, and it's it's okay because I've got me,
2: you know. Absolutely. And I just did a post on this last night because. Um, and I did it, I've done it a couple of times. I've had a few people ask me or ask other survivors, So you know, are you are you thankful for what happened to you because of where you are now? I say, no, I'm not thankful for what happened to me. I don't want to give any kind of appreciation to the perpetrator or perpetrators in your case as well. I'm thankful for me because in a situation that I was given that was awful in adversity and you've done the same, we've worked our fucking asses off to get to where we are now. So I'm thankful for me. I'm thankful for myself. I did this hard work. And I think that's an important way to frame it. I'm never thankful that those shit things happen, but aren't I incredible for coming out the other side? Because look at how hard I've worked. I think that's the important distinction to make there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And and it's it's something that takes practice as well to think that way. Because I at least really wasn't used to thinking that way. I was used to just, you know, the inner voice just putting me down. That's that's what i was used to and now it really is intentionally consciously saying like look at where you did protect yourself like even in even in those three months that i was with that that guy um i was protecting myself i was protecting myself by fawning i was protecting myself by complying i was protecting myself by believing that we were in a relationship that was the way my mind said this is the best way for you to survive. You know, if you run away, he might kill you. Okay, so you're going to have to pay along. Yeah. And it was all like subconscious kind of going on, you know. Um, the, there were a lot of different other things that, that it's taken me years to figure out and to realize that we are wired to survive. And so, no matter what it is that you do, even if it's self sabotaging or self abusive, it serves you in some way. It, it's helping you survive in some way, you know, because. It, it it's you using whatever tools you have available to you in that moment. Obviously, if you know, if you can look for alternatives that are healthier and not self-abusive and not self-sabotaging, and that's the point, really. Like when it comes to self healing, where we try and say, okay, how can I serve my needs in better ways? But until you get to that point, you know, letting go of that shame is, I think, key to to self healing because shame is really like debilitating. And when we don't understand why we do what we do, why we did what we did, um, why things happen to us then, then, and, and with silence as well along the way, like that shame is really keeping us stuck. Um, I wrote an article about, about the shame as well, um, recently, but, um,
2: you know, I'm captivated by when you speak. I think it's just incredible. Um, but I want to say thank you for coming on and sharing your story and being so thank candid. You. Um, I do ask each and every survivor, though, as well, and I think you've already given some bits and snippets. Um, what would be your advice that you would give to somebody else, somebody else that was in your position or?
3: It's so hard, and I think I've I've always been trying to think about like what's that key, what's that one thing that you can say to someone that will shake them out of you know whatever it is that they're struggling with, and I haven't figured out with what that one sentence is yet. But what I will say is that. I believe that the harder the climb, the better the view is at the top. So even if it's really, really hard for you right now and what you're going through is feels like is hell on earth, just know that it's worth sticking it out and, and, and fighting your way to, to get to climb out of that hole because when you get up there, because it was so bad, it is going to be so good when you get there, like it's relative, you know, like the darker it is that the lighter, the light is when you come out, you know, like if you've been in pitch black, then you come out to the light, it like hurts your eyes because it was so black. Right. It was so dark. So it's the same thing. Like, however dark your life is right now, it's going to be that much brighter when you get out of it. Um, And I believe that because I lived it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, that's absolutely
2: incredible. And it's so true as well. I can really, I really feel that, you know, even not long ago I had a um, a really, really down day, a really down day, and, and I remember the next day I literally just turned around and I was like, I was okay though. Like I actually was fine, and I realised how far I've come from having such bad depression where that day two years ago would have broken me and I wouldn't have gone to work, I would have, you know, been suicidal, I wouldn't have been able to do anything whereas this day it was just a bad day and then the next day was completely fine. And to be able to even reflect on that as such a tiny thing, you go, holy shit. Uh (laughs) It is. It's so bright from that point of view. Um, So how do people get in touch with you? And can you tell us a little bit more about the consulting work that you do?
3: I'm basically now offering what I really needed and didn't exist and I do believe that I'm the only person that really does this um, in this way, because I've taken the organizational consulting model and I apply it to the individual. Um, why should only big corporations with deep pockets get this kind of service? Right. Um, so basically I help you analyze the symptoms, right? So like, do you have a problem? Do you, you know, anxiety, depression, smoking, eating disorder, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's actually a symptom. It's symptomatic of a deeper problem. So I help you analyze and get down to the root problem. And we diagnose what that root cause is, what that problem is together. And then I help you research the right solution for you because we're all individuals. We're all unique. There is no one size fits all, you know? So we, um, have a look through my toolbox and what, what's worked for me and what I found along the way as well. And, um, and If there's nothing that I have available, then we see what is out there, available best practices, which is exactly the way consultants work with organizations. Um, And also, if I'm not the right person to help you implement the solution, then I will help you find the right person to implement the solution. Um, But I can also mentor you through the process of implementing the solution because quite often it is something like journaling and, and, you know, meditating and yoga and like all these tools that wonderful tools that we do have available. A lot of them really do work, um, like quite universally. So, um, that's basically in a nutshell, um, weekly online sessions and you can find me through, um, I'm on Instagram a lot daily, uh, the self healing consultant, And also my website, selfhealingconsultant.com. And I also have two Facebook groups online on Facebook. I've got the self-healing support group, a support group for female millennial professionals. Um, And I also have um, the online business building hub, um, which is also for for purpose-driven women that are starting or want to start an online business Uh, with purpose and passion, where you can find me
2: online. If you do want to connect with um, either of us, all of the links will be in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Emily, for coming on so much. Thank you. I, I can't tell you how, how wonderful I think you are and how much of a true survivor and how wonderful it is to see another survivor coming out of this, this darkness and turning all of their trauma and experiences into something positive for other people in the world. I think it's just so wonderful. So thank you so much. This is Reclaim Me, signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on one three one 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 four. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well